Welcome to Stories of COVID, the interview project that explores what it's like to experience a global pandemic. I never thought I would see this in my lifetime. It is scary and it's very real, but it's not hopeless. As I said, I changed three planes. None of them were wearing any gloves or masks. I've never seen so much support for freelancers or artists in the in the media um, as I have now. They both laid me off from just the advent of the, the outbreak. I'm anthropologist and author Veronica Kieran, and I am building an interview archive of stories and anecdotes that define this time in history to write a book preserving this experience for future generations. If you'd like to help preserve this moment in history for future generations, check out the show notes to sign up for an interview. Matthew is a poli-sci student and is a member of the Youth Parliament in Canada. He has had a front row seat as the government has managed the virus, as well as managing group organizations and meetings while slowly realizing that this was not as temporary as we had initially hoped. I was living in Edmonton, which is one of the largest cities in Alberta where I go to school at. You know, at this time, it didn't spread here. It wasn't a matter of concern, really, for people living here, like immediate concern. It was really just known about by folks who happened to be following the news. We knew there was something going on in Wuhan province where there was some sort of virus spreading similar to SARS, but different as well. Honestly, we were kind of naive. We didn't think it would spread here, really, or at least get as bad as it did. We thought like, you know, when they were building those emergency hospitals out of the shipping containers and when they were locking down, we thought like, wow, you know, it's a good thing, like, you know, they're communists then because they couldn't do all that. Otherwise, there's no way we would lock down here. I, I guess going off what I was saying earlier, um, it definitely changed a lot. Uh, me, uh, partly, I think, because I was too young to remember the SARS outbreak. So this has been my first, like, you know, I knew a bit about the H1N1, I guess. I was aware of that. But this was the first sort of virus I've been living through where... I've really been old enough to appreciate the gravity of what's going on and really understand it. When it first spread here, like uh, when the first cases came to Canada and Alberta, that is, I remember being a bit concerned, but I had some sort of faith that it would have been caught early enough that, you know, the travelers could be quarantined and we could get a handle on it. Obviously, that didn't happen. My perspective on it quickly changed once I saw the cases rising. Not so much here at first, because it took a bit longer to spread, but as I saw cases starting to climb in the United States and seeing the sort of death toll it caused in China, both what was officially admitted and then what was speculated to have actually happened, I realized even if it didn't quickly spread here, it probably would at some point, and it definitely has. I, I guess I just sort of realized that regardless of how much it spread here, there was always the possibility that it would get worse. So if it didn't, that's just because we reacted well. But 
if we react well and it doesn't spread, that doesn't mean it's gone. So, uh, you know, for a while we had that belief that we just had to flatten the curve, protect, you know, our, our healthcare system, stop it from getting overwhelmed, and we'd be okay. But you just sort of come to accept after a while that the two weeks is never going to be enough. And until vaccines roll out and we can get some sort of immunity to this, we're always going to have to have some sort of restrictions because as soon as you lift them, we're just back to square one and it can spread again. Spread easier, that is. So where I am uh, in Alberta, we are in the middle of our third wave. So back in December, I want to say November, December, we sort of reached our peak up until now where our uh, healthcare system was pretty much at capacity. Our ICUs were like 20 beds away from reaching capacity. Uh, we had a couple of temporary facilities set up in, you know, like recreational spaces, but they weren't needed to that point, thankfully. And now, uh, not only are we getting back to that sort of area, we're, we're at the same level, level of active cases and ICU beds being used up as we were back then, but the variants are also spreading quite a bit here. So uh, especially the UK variant, um, variants now take up 60% of the active cases here and they're impacting younger people to a greater extent than the original virus. So we're seeing people who uh, in their 40s and 50s especially uh, going to the ICU, whereas before it was mainly those 70 and above taking up ICU space. And uh, I, I guess another thing would be uh, long-term care homes. Not so much now. They're still sort of recovering, I guess you could say, from outbreaks because lots of people in long-term care homes died here. So it's affected my life in a few ways for sure. Um, first off, like I said, I'm in the honors program for my program, so uh, for, for my degree. So that means I'm working on an honors thesis, which is like a scaled down master's thesis. And so this is my first time doing a major research project. And this is like the capstone for my entire degree. And I had to do it all from a basement suite. So meeting with my cohort was online. Meeting with my supervisor was online. All the research I was able to do had to be online. And since the libraries were closed and the university spaces were closed, that means it was all right here from my basement suite, right from my couch or my office chair. So holding myself to account and just trying to stay focused in a space that really it doesn't change because i'm not redoing the place and it doesn't change because i'm not looking out the window seeing different spaces that impacted both the quality of my work and how much i was able to stay to task in regards to my work that changed less i would say but still quite a bit so and by work i mean my paid work um, at the grocery store because we were an essential service. We never closed down, but obviously for one, there's a lot more cleaning involved, uh, mask wearing, stuff like that. The basics, social distancing, but it's also really <laughs> made me see people in a bit of a different light because a lot of folks there are good and, you know, they put on hand sanitizer, they wear their masks, they're okay, but a lot of people haven't been okay doing that. I, I remember uh, this one couple I dealt with where they came in 
And like with most people, I assume they put on hand sanitizer because most people just walk by the stand and that's okay. So I ask them to put it on. The lady huffs and just walks out without another word. Okay, whatever. Not putting up a fuss. The guy started to walk out after her, but he looked at me and said, You look gay! Then left. And he was in his 30s or 40s. And I thought, okay, first off, what's wrong with that? Like, if you're gay, you're gay. But secondly, what? Is, is it gay to have clean hands? Because I, I don't want to have brunch at your place if that's the case. <laughs> How much did you wash your hands before this? You know, there, there are people who, like just didn't want to wear masks or I had one guy wearing like sort of like a fishnet or a cargo net on his face so it had a lot of holes and he tried to argue that it still met the bylaw so I couldn't kick him out like it just really gets to me that these are grown people people twice my age at least they're allowed on our nation's highways they can vote and up until this point they were considered or at least supposed to be considered the people the younger generations have to look up to and listen to. And yet, I've dealt with so many crappy adults and cranky adults who don't want to put up with this. And I've had, I have yet to have a child who gives me that sort of static when it comes to mask wearing or hand sanitizing. Like a lot of the times, the parents look like they want to fight me about the hand sanitizer. But then they realize their kids are already happily putting it on and they don't want to make a scene in front of their kids. So what are we supposed to say about that? For me, it, it sort of feels like the skepticism or the resistance starts when the people are old enough to use social media and get into the conspiracies, to be quite honest with you, because it's the, like, the younger kids, the kids in general, they just sort of take it for granted. Like, okay, they have to wear masks. Fine clean their hands okay they're happy to they lunge at the hand sanitizer stand i've seen kids use it two or three times because it's an automatic thing but even if an adult believes in covid i i guess they feel a bit more open to to uh talking back in a way sometimes they just complain that they already put on hand sanitizer somewhere else so they don't want to or maybe they say oh, well, there's no proof the hand sanitizer kills COVID, so what's the point? Or, you know, I've definitely had people say, like, oh, I, you don't really believe in this, do you? So I almost feel like either by virtue of being an adult or by virtue of seeing others talk back, they feel a bit more emboldened to join that. The biggest generational gap I've seen besides adult versus not adult would be with mask use, just because it tends to be older people who complain about the breathing issues and, you know, their masks slip below their noses and they leave it or whatever. Besides that, I, don't, I haven't really noticed a huge difference when with, with compliance itself. I'd say mid to high 20s and above, really. I've had people from any of those high, like any of those, you know, adult generations giving me static and many others complying, so. Oh, goodness, it's been vital. Like, e you know, even for me, like, I still work in public, but I need it for school. I need it for extracurriculars. I need it for communicating with a lot of different people. Without technology, I'd be hooped. Like, with the uh, youth parliament I mentioned in the interview, for example, so I, I was in a youth parliament for a few years, which is just a venue for 
youth to debate and explore issues following our parliamentary system that we have here. Little Pug, we're the longest running in Canada, continuously running that is, because we've went every year since 1920 without a break. So pretty happy we didn't end that streak this year. Instead of meeting, we did everything virtually. So uh, from cabinet meetings to events, including our main winter session, all virtually for the first time ever. That was huge. Um, and actually that made it more accessible. Although there have been concerns about inaccessibility for technology. For everyone here, if they can afford to have that technology, it's been huge for them. And if they couldn't, they've just been sort of left behind. Because, you know, it's not just universities. Grade schools have been online a lot. At first, it was all the schools across, across the province. Now it's just sort of schools that are experiencing outbreaks. But uh, it, it's sort of a given that if you can't do something in person, most likely you're expected to do it virtually. I think I would have to go back to that youth parliament because this was like one of the most eventful things that happened to me during this whole thing. With this youth parliament, like I said, you know, we spent the past hundred years doing everything in person. Obviously, uh, at first, it had to be because there was no online. But even once, uh, for example, the past couple of years, we started looking at Microsoft Teams as ways of, um, or uh, Zoom as ways of sort of modernizing our operations. We didn't because there was no need to. And we didn't want to, I guess, focus on adopting some complicated online virtual platforms when we had other pressing concerns to look at, like recruitment levels. COVID um, forced us to adapt and really look at things we should have looked at a long time ago. Starting in March, when we first locked down, uh, the question came up. First, it was just a matter of, excuse me, first trying to just figure out how to uh, bridge our operations over until we could meet again. Uh, so, okay, how can we just keep having our regular meetings and keep our planning going while we wait for things to get back to normal? It, it was a, sort of a gradual process of realization for us because we, when we plan events for our main December event, we had to plan uh, in conjunction with the Alumni Society because uh, they're the ones traditionally who were in favor of planning the December session because it was held at the provincial legislature, right? So they had the connections with the legislature. They had the pocketbooks to finance the entire thing. Uh, they were very hopeful that given it was our 100th year, 101st session, we could do it in person. So throughout the year, I would say we would give ourselves sort of room to go either way. We would plan for it to both for an event to both be in person or virtual up until a few weeks before it happened, and then we had to commit to doing it virtually. But once we got to the December session, that was our biggest sort of challenge because uh, in May, we were supposed to um, have a biannual event where we uh, met with a few other provincial youth parliaments across Western Canada and had a mass session with them. And that couldn't happen, obviously, because it was planned to be in British Columbia this year and they didn't have an online fallback. So December was our biggest event to come up. And it was also a challenge because we were supposed to be pulling members from the public. So we had to change everything. And 
it wasn't just a matter of finding a way to host this, but since this is a parliamentary sort of organization, we could try and adapt all of our procedures to be virtual as well, because even, you know, the House of Commons and even our provincial actual government, they all have some members in person to keep doing that in-person sort of fluff, right? The opening ceremonies and uh, the speaker and all that, they still go to the, to the legislature or the House of Commons. We couldn't do that. Uh, we wanted to for a while. We were thinking of doing a bit of a hybrid thing, but then cases spiked here and we didn't want to risk it. Just, it, it was very intense because it got to the point where, uh, for instance, I would be meeting, my, myself and a few other parliamentarian executives would be meeting with the Alumni Council, uh, their, their planning committee, every week. And then on top of that, we had weekly cabinet meetings with just the parliament, the, the parliament's cabinet. Uh, and then I had an, another meeting involving this. So I was in two or three meetings a week for a few months, just trying to sort out everything from how we would host this uh, to how we could afford to host this. Cause we, you know, Microsoft Teams, it's, it's expensive. And right down to the roots of, okay, well, how do we change the opening ceremony and the closing ceremony? and the basics of debate and all this stuff, since none of it can happen in person, and it's not supposed to happen online. It's supposed to be in person. So we had to change everything. But once we did, it was good in a way because it allowed us to keep some of the good aspects of online functions for coming years to try and keep it a bit more accessible because not everyone from across the province can attend those meetings you know, on a monthly basis or go all the way to Edmonton for, you know, the December sessions. So it, it was beneficial in a way, but it was a lot to go through. <laughs> I'll go back to that customer I had before then, because so this was the first time where I encountered someone who really gave me flack about the COVID restrictions. I was working at my store uh, and it's, it's, it's a small, store right so i'm the only one working uh at that shift and i have to deal with the customers for the entirety of the time they're in the store so this guy walks in quickly grabs something and heads to my tail and i noticed right off the bat that he uh wasn't wearing a proper face mask so it looked like a cargo net or a fishing net but with ear loops so a lot of holes there so as I'm ringing his one item. I politely say, and by the way, sir, um, next time you're in, we ask that you wear a proper face mask because there's a new bylaw uh, saying that you need a proper face mask. And he cuts me off and says, no, this covers my, my mouth and my nose. This beats the bylaw. And I say, okay, well, I'm saying that it doesn't meet my requirements because <laughs> it doesn't act like what a face mask should. It doesn't do what a face mask should. You know, you can still breathe through it and spit through it. You can still spread stuff. And he huffed and walked out. And I just, you know, that's what really got me thinking. Like, my goodness, is a mask too much for people? <laughs> like, that was my first time where I saw a grown adult. Like, I, I've had bad customers in the past, but to have a grown adult go through that sort of length just to try and not protect other people, that really messed with me. Thank you for listening. Subscribe so that you don't miss an interview. 
I interview multiple people a week and I am releasing these episodes as fast as I can. And if the story meant something to you, share it because it will probably mean something to someone else. Every time you share the project, it helps the project grow. So thank you. Until next time, stay safe, stay well.